Hello and welcome to another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, art as memorial, as reminder, as preserver of the past, especially the unfinished past, events we can't put behind us, but that we don't know how to live with either. I'll get to the events in question in a minute, but first the artist in this story. He's known by the single name Trimpen. He was born Gerhard Trimpen, but dropped the first name. Trimpen's well-known in some circles, but uh, I didn't hear about him until last year when I was interviewing the violinist David Harrington of the Kronos Quartet. Do you know about Trimpen? No. Oh, Trimpen. Trimpen's uh, one of the amazing musical forces in the in the universe, I think. I know. David's description is a little vague, but a lot of people have trouble categorizing Trimpen, and they end up resorting to superlatives like Marvel and Genius. In fact, Trimpen has a MacArthur Genius Award to his credit. He's a kind of a composer-slash-inventor-slash-mechanical wizard. He's sometimes called a sound sculptor. And what he does is create wild and elaborate music-making contraptions, devices that seem pretty impractical in theory, but in practice actually work. In fact, they look and sound incredible. For example, there's the uh, giant tornado-shaped tower of guitars that Trimpen created for the Experience Music Project in Seattle. The guitars actually play and tune themselves. For an exhibition in Holland, he found a bunch of discarded wooden shoes and fitted them with little mechanical mallets to make a percussive sculpture. And for the Ojai Music Festival in Ojai, California in 2008, he built this automated marimba-like thingy. Trimpen's latest work, the one we're going to be focusing on today, includes something called a fire organ. That's a pipe organ driven by flames. a rhythmic water dripper, remote-controlled player pianos tapping out messages in Morse code, and a lot of other amazing creations. It's all part of an audiovisual memorial marking one of the lesser-known chapters of the Holocaust. The production is called Gurs Zyklus, which means the Gurs Cycle. It's named after a prison camp in southern France near Spain. The Gurs camp was built by the French in the late 1930s to hold refugees from the Spanish Civil War. And then in the early years of World War II, it was used by Nazis to imprison Jews deported from southwest Germany, the region known as Baden-Waltz. That's where Trimpen grew up, in a little village near the Swiss border, in the years after the war. There were no Jews left in the area, and he didn't know anything about the Holocaust. Then one day, when he was about eight or nine years old, he and some friends found this overgrown cemetery in the woods. There were some cryptic inscriptions on the gravestones. They were in Hebrew, though he didn't know that then. But that discovery of those graves started him asking questions. 
what what are these symbols, what are these kind of inscriptions, and and then that's where I heard the first time uh, the word Chu. I had no uh, knowledge of, of any of this. Uh, also, I didn't know what, what it meant to be Jewish, because I never heard about uh, uh, of a Jewish, you know, like a religion or culture, or it was completely new. So that's where all the uh, kind of the uh, curiosities start started to to ask more, to learn about more. What kind of people are why they are gone, and 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 slowly I learned that they was deported uh, to girls. What were you told by your parents? about what had happened to the Jews during World War II, after you started asking? Well, at, at, in our um, family, in our home, uh, there was always a, a very open uh, discussion about politics or race or anything. So there was never any kind of uh, taboo issues. So there was quite uh, an open uh, uh, discussion about this uh, issue, also with my grandparents, because my grandfather... Uh, he would actually uh, tell me once I needed a spool of wire to build an antenna for this radio uh, I found in the attic. And I had to get this kind of equipment from this local ele electrician store. And he told me, oh, this guy, he was one of the biggest Nazi uh, guy in the village. Uh, and I would ask always, you know, like, who was involved, you know, who was in the party, who was in the local kind of, uh, like the National uh, Socialistic uh, Party. That's the Nazi party. Right, right. And did they tell you then when you started asking these questions at eight or nine years old, they told you that millions of Jews had been not, killed? Not or? really. Uh, there was definitely like, uh, at this time, I remember uh, there was still the Nuremberg process uh, going on. More like in the mid-50s, like the lower, lower key uh, members, like uh, lawyers, um, attorneys, and, and uh, professors, and so forth, they had to be entnazifiziert. This means they had to prove there was only a small Nazi and not a big Nazi. And that was kind of uh, a farce uh, going on. And I remember uh, uh, these processes because I was fascinated. They had headphones. Uh, they was wearing headphones uh, because for the translation. And I was uh, always fascinated with headphones somehow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen some film of the Nuremberg trials too. Probably the earlier ones with the, the major the big figures. Guys, yeah. Goring and Speer and people like that. Himmler. No, no, no. But Himmler was dead. Yeah. But I've seen those with the headphones. But how did you then learn about the scope of the Holocaust when it wasn't spoken of you know, a lot, I guess. You had to start asking questions. How did you Well, it was always, it? always like the general attitude uh, in Germany at this time was, uh, well, let's move on. Let's don't open old wounds. You know, don't open. Let's, let's just move on. This was a terrible time. And slowly, like, my education in this uh, direction was like uh, seeing definitely pictures from from uh, concentration camps, seeing uh, the horrific like uh, uh, documentation uh, slowly through the next several years, and um, 
coming to this conclusion, never war again, you know, never war again, because we just learned what, what happened uh, uh, during uh, this time. But then when I was like 15, 14, 15, 16 years old, uh, just being politically mature to understand the scope, to understand the magnitude of, of this horrific uh, event, what happened uh, throughout the Nazi time. On TV, I saw villages burning again, but they wasn't in Poland, they was in Vietnam. And this was immediately uh, a shock again. Didn't we just learn no war uh, again? And, and seeing the horrific pictures from the Nazis when they was overrunning Poland, setting everything afire, burning down villages, and then on TV, on, on radio and TV, seeing similar images uh, from the burning villages in, in Vietnam. And this was also then the reason I was uh, refusing to be going to the military, being a CEO. Uh, Conscientious objector. Right. And uh, and actually my father uh, was uh, a part of uh, the process to help me to go through the trial because he was, uh, uh, you could show up with a lawyer or you could show up with some kind of a counsel uh, uh, for your legal rights. But I took uh, my father offered to go and told uh, this military guys what he uh, uh, experienced uh, throughout the war and that he only can uh, support my decision not being a soldier, not going to war. Do you think your, your generation of Germans, the, the children of the generation that had you know, lived in and fought in World War II, do, do you carry guilt? Definitely guilt, oh yes, yes. Because he was constantly uh, reminded uh, of of what your own culture happened in your own village, uh, what happened, you know, and and uh, and still learning like later that asking uh, some people who witnessed uh, what happened with the Nazi in this in my village, what happened with the Nazi members. So when I ask them, uh, like a witness, what did this Nazi do? Did they actually at Kristallnacht? Did they? Uh, uh, damage the stores in their own village, but they didn't do this. They was ordered to go and damage, make the whole damage in other villages, which they didn't know anybody. So they didn't uh, harm their own neighbor, but they was harming other people who they didn't know. So it was much more easier for them to uh, uh, destroy everything because they had no relation to this particular uh, person or family. Mm -hmm. I should explain that um, Kristallnacht was this night uh, in 1930, 30, uh, November 9th in 1938. Yeah, when Jewish businesses and homes and Jews themselves were all attacked. A lot of broken windows, why, that's why it's called Kristallnacht. Like a crystal glass, like a goblet, a wine goblet, it's called crystal glass. So uh, that's kind of the reference to, to the Kristallnacht, uh, the broken, the, the night of the broken glass. So I'm interested in how these feelings that include guilt and bewilderment, I think, uh, at what had happened before you were born, how these eventually became this work of art that you're staging at Stanford. I think I, since a young person, 
I all, always had somehow in mind to express this, what I learned, what I uh, went through with, with uh, friends or with parents, also like the ones who completely uh, denied uh, uh, what happened. Being also a young student demonstrating against Vietnam, I want to express it in a different way. I knew somehow, sometimes, I, I want to express this kind of uh, feeling, like you mentioned, guilt was definitely uh, a part of it. But this guilt can only be uh, healed when I work on, on these issues in, in this particular way. I, I always imagined that I want to do something not showing like uh, these horrific pictures of, of uh, the Holocaust, the horrific pictures, what happened, uh, trying to, to tell this story where all these parts which I learned from, from my early childhood on uh, in terms of how I perceive sound or how I take a certain image. So this, the idea was to translate all this kind of experience to tell the story over the, what happened in the last 50 years. The, the story of what happened the last 50 years. So not just the story of how the Jews were deported from the area where you grew up in Germany to this uh, prison camp in Gurs in southern France, but, but beyond that. Right. It's, it was always like through these coincidences, like uh, being reminded back to this word Gurs constantly came up. How did it keep coming up? Since I remembered from the first time as a young child, uh, just like uh, the smallest kind of part of mentioning this place immediately uh, was was kind of apparent was was there and and then again later when I worked with the composer Conlon and Caro, he talked about uh, uh, being uh, interned uh, and he was my mentor you know and and when I talk about coincidences like constantly coincidence uh, came up and I'm Robert Polly here with the Seventh Avenue project on KUSP. I'm talking to the composer and sound sculptor Trimpen about his new multimedia production called Gurs Zyklus, The Gurs Cycle. It's premiering this weekend at Stanford University. And Trimpen says that word cycle refers to various ways that reminders of the Gurs prison camp kept surfacing in his life over the years. For instance, there was the time he met the composer Conlon Nancaro in the 1980s. Nancaro is famous for his experimental player piano tunes. Here's an example. And when they met, Conlon Nancaro told Trimpen that he himself had been held at Gurs in the late 1930s after fighting in the Spanish Civil War. That was before the Germans turned Gurs into an internment camp for Jews during World War II. And that mention was just one of many Gurs-related coincidences that kept coming up in Trimpen's life. Here's another. You were later um, contacted by someone after a, a profile of you ran in the New Yorker magazine in 2006. Someone had read this profile and, and, and learned that you grew up in this area where the Jews were deported to the camp at Gurs and, and contacted you because they had relatives who were there? Or a well, relative? Uh, his name is Victor Rosenberg and Victor Rosenberg's mother uh, uh, was born in the village I grew up 
and Victor Rosenberg's father was the cantor and religious teacher in this village where I grew up. But they was lucky they could, uh, they was immigrating in 1936 to the United States. But Victor Rosenberg's father's family, they all went, uh, was deported uh, to Gurs. And, and, and Victor Rosenberg, he sent you letters? When, his, when Victor Rosenberg's father died about six years ago, uh, Victor found a shoebox full of letters, over a hundred letters in this shoebox, and they all came from girls. But Victor couldn't read these letters because it was in German and in kind of an old-fashioned uh, uh, German uh, handwriting. And uh, so he had to translate these letters first to learn the whole story of what actually happened to this family. Tell me, Trimpen, then, with this, this weight of history, the weight of this particular event that we've talked about, the Jews from the area where you grew up in Germany who were taken to this prison camp, and then the, the larger event of the Holocaust itself, how do you wrestle that into a work of art, a performance like this? Well, how put history, this kind of history, back in a 75-minute uh, performance? That's very, you know, that's uh, hard to kind of uh, coordinate or to, to imagine how to do this. It's more like an abstraction of, of these different thoughts, of these different experiences going through my childhood, uh, using sounds, using different, uh, uh, the music of Nancaro, using uh, different elements, the visual elements, of course, of the letters. But also three years ago, almost four years ago, uh, one of the first letter, uh, letter coming from girls out of the camp uh, was describing the horrific train ride from Germany to the French Pyrenees, which took four days. And um, in this letter, uh, all the names of the, uh, of the train stations where the train stopped was mentioned in France. And um, almost four years ago, I took the same train ride, which was described uh, in this letter from Germany through France, through all these train stations to Gurs. And then uh, I recorded uh, some train track sounds. I recorded the, the whistles of the conductor or uh, the announcements of the train stations. And, and I was basically riding on, on probably on the same tracks this train 70 years ago was, was uh, uh, going through. And uh, when I arrived in, in Gurs, there was not much of a memorial uh, there. And again, for me, the old grow trees, which had this incredible bark, uh, very colorful bark, uh, I knew that uh, this tree was there 70 years ago, and this tree witnessed what, uh, what happened uh, around this camp. And then again, I, used, I took some photographs of this bark and had uh, slowly developed this idea how to transcribe uh, this image, like this colorful bark image, into a musical score. You transcribe the patterns, the visual patterns, into musical patterns. Right. And what kind of music did it produce? Well, sometimes it's, it's, it's a very slow legato um, uh, part, and this, was, uh, this will be part of it, will be played on the fire organ. 
uh, which uh, is also a very slow instrument. It's not like a very fast staccato uh, instrument with a lot of attacks. It's just like more like a flowing sound uh, from one pitch to the next one. And, and all these kind of elements, musical elements, will be uh, used on this different uh, set design. And basically the set design is uh, different contraptions. They kind of look awkward in a way. And, and all these elements uh, are used uh, by uh, using sound, visual elements. Uh, water is used because water was the biggest complaints uh, always coming out of the camp uh, because there, there was uh, so much mud and so much kind of rain uh, in the winter month that it was very hard to, to, to get around. And uh, so it starts with water, where water uh, falls into this kind of buckets or in this kind of uh, vases. But the water drips are synchronized, which is playing uh, study number six of, of Nankero. First with the water, and then the rhythm will be taken over on other instruments and eventually on the pianos. Tell me what you experienced taking this train ride that retraced the, the route of these Jewish prisoners uh, going to this prison camp. I mean, you're traveling through modern-day Germany and France, very pleasant, and yet there's all this sad history underneath it. What did you experience? Well, of course, it, it, it was constantly uh, a sad journey. Uh, you were always reminded of, of, of this uh, uh, sadness, what happened. So when you put all this history together, your personal history, history of these these wars and conflicts in the 20th century, the history of these people who survived and didn't survive. Are you do you expect to create a certain kind of experience for the audience? Well, my my hope for the audience is always it doesn't matter if it's this piece or other pieces, they have to come up with their own imagination what what they experience. And like I said before, you cannot put uh, this part of history in, in, in cramping it in, in 75 minutes. But how I, how I perceived it somehow or how, how I want to express this, because it was a part of my upbringing, a part of my own uh, life to experience all these parts. And for me, it's nothing, it's not, I don't see it this way that we bring this tremendous, you know, like, history uh, back into it. It's more to give the audience uh, kind of um, hints of looking back to, to learn about uh -huh, who is Lorca or who is Nancaro or who are uh, the Rosenbergs or why are dripping, what are these dripping water uh, names meaning? Why? It's always the question why uh, and similar or the question is of being curious and that's kind of uh, reflecting back to my own life, uh, being curious about everything. And that's how I learned. And that's how uh, I always uh, got educated by, by asking. It wasn't just taking the information without questioning it. Because all the information, it's there, but there's still always these questions which, which uh, wasn't quite there. And then you would ask, this question, and that's where, where the education kicks in. As I hear you describe Gorsiklus, it occurs to me that what, what, what happens here is not some grand statement that sums up this history, but rather the little signals 
that history leaves behind and that trigger memories, that trigger curiosity, whether it's rain falling or bits of old letters or certain sounds, you know, fragments left over from an event, and you are putting these in front of us. Yeah, there are fragments, definitely. Like that's all like this bits, kind of bits and pieces of uh, history, and that's how uh, we only can learn through these bits uh, and, and and fragments. Huh. Well, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. That was the artist known as Trimpen describing his latest work, the Gorse Cycle. And uh, as we heard, some of the historical materials used in the Gorse Cycle are family letters supplied by Victor Rosenberg. He's a professor at the University of Michigan, and he contacted Trimpen after reading about him in the New Yorker magazine in 2006. Victor's parents were from the same area of southern Germany where Trimpen grew up. They emigrated to the U.S. in 1938, so they escaped the Holocaust. But some of the family members on Victor's father's side were stuck back in Germany, including Victor's grandparents and his uncle Julius. And Julius sent an increasingly desperate series of letters to Victor's father in America as conditions worsened. And he continued to write even after he and Victor's grandparents were sent to the Gorse prison camp in France. Victor's grandparents ultimately died there, and Julius was sent to Auschwitz, where he also died. Here's Victor Rosenberg. All of this is, is described so vividly in these, in these letters. And then he describes the, the actual deportation. He talks about the, the, the 24-hour notice to assemble and then the train ride to Gours. And then he describes vividly in these letters from Gours the terrible conditions, the death of my grandmother. All of this is, is described in, in these letters in great detail. Um, so the story is, is you know, tragic and dramatic. But again, what I find interesting about this and... and uh, there's an author, Mendelssohn, who wrote a book called The Lost, who described Daniel Mendelssohn. Daniel Mendelssohn. Yeah. There's a review of the, his book where the reviewer um, uh, mentions that we look at all these events from the hindsight of knowing what happened. That is, we know about the final solution. We know about Auschwitz. We know about the six million Jews being murdered. But these letters were written at a time, even these letters from 1940 to 42 from the labor camp in Gurs where my uncle and, and, and my grandparents still held out the hope that this is going to be over soon. This can't go on like this. And none of them, I think, as terrible as the conditions were, I don't think any of them ever imagined that they would all be murdered. So that somehow we have to read these letters understanding that there was always this hope that they would get out, that they would, and and that's what I think is the central core of the whole thing is this, this inextinguishable hope that people had in spite of the most terrible conditions, and then the fact that we read these with the knowledge that as terrible as the conditions were, they got infinitely worse. What's intriguing to me about the letters is as much what they don't say as what they do say, um, and I think uh, Trimpen understands some of that because I think he understands, too, from his point of view as a non-Jew growing up in Germany, um, as he pointed out, his questions are, you know, what happened? And it's a, it's a bizarre um, circumstance. And one of the things that my father always told me was, don't ever think it can't happen here, because we didn't think it could happen either. I think 
in a way that um, that paranoia has affected me as well. And my career has always been based on never taking anything for granted. You know, it's it's been sort of interesting. So you think subtly, psychologically, for you, there's a feeling that that a sword could fall at any moment? Absolutely. Was your father... I mean, first of all, this was a an exceptional circumstance that Jewish prisoners held in a, you know, what amounted to a concentration camp were allowed to even write letters out, yeah? Well, that, that's, the, that's part of the puzzle. I mean, you called it a concentration camp, but it was really, uh, I think that it was conceived of, many people say, as part of the Madagascar plan. They were going to ship the Jews out of uh, France then to Madagascar, but the, the history suggests that this was, not, was implausible. So they were sort of stuck there, and they didn't know what to do with them. But you have to understand that this was not yet the final solution, which was dreamed up in 1942. That's when they started shipping people to the concentration camps and gassing them and killing them. So the fact that this was a labor camp, they allowed letters. They were all censored. They were all stamped by the Nazi censors, but they were able to get not only letters, but also packages. Many of the letters delineate what was getting through. You know, People would send them sausages and uh, food or you know uh, items of clothing or toiletries and things like that and I had relatives in Switzerland that were sending these packages to uh, these people in Gurs so it was it was a different situation than the crematoria and the and the concentration camps and that's sort of what I was trying to get across to you is that we see this through the lens of knowing about the concentration camps and yet I had the feeling in reading the letters that my relatives in Gurs were not, they didn't envision genocide. That wasn't part of the equation. It was like, this is war, this is terrible, this is awful, but it will end. And they even express this, they even say this, you know, when this ends, then. So there, there was always this inextinguishable hope that ultimately was extinguished. And of course, that's the part that, that, even reading the letters and all the history of the Holocaust that I can read, which is limited, uh, it, it still is impossible for me to fathom how these Germans could kill women and children, men, women, and children, the elderly, all these people just you know, murdered them in cold blood because they were Jewish. Um. So what do you think now that Trimpen has taken the letters, uh, copies of which you gave to him, and incorporated them into this work in various ways? Copies of the letters are strewn about the stage during this performance. Uh, they are read and sung from. And these are the voices of your, your family members. They're, they're very mixed feelings. I mean, there are many different feelings about it. One is I'm doing this for my children and grandchildren so that they can understand their heritage. And um, and that's important. And so I want this to be preserved, to be published, you know, to be visible. Uh, the other thing is that I see it as a memorial, because even though I never knew my grandparents, never met them, even though I didn't know my uncle and never met him, uh, I wanted to to memorial to to preserve his memory as an individual. And that's what I think these letters do. And so I'm I'm delighted to see this 
to be a memorial and it's an artistic memorial and I think that what Trimpen is doing is as much a memorial as uh, uh, creating a monument uh, which is what we do in, in graveyards to uh, commemorate our ancestors. And of course the other thing about, that, that's one part of it, the other part of it is that in the, the strange thing about this effort to translate the letters and to find out about these people who have long since died I have met all these relatives I never knew I had, uh, people in Germany who were very interested in this heritage as well, and it's just led from one thing to another, and of course, in part, and part of that has led to this, actually, I consider it a friendship with Trimpen, who is this brilliant artist who uh, chose to participate in this memorialization, this commemoration of uh, my dead relatives. Uh, and, and part of that also, I think, is, um, and I'm certainly far from a theologian, but I, I think that, that one of the differences between Judaism and Christianity is that we don't make a big deal about the resurrection and the, uh, and the afterlife. But what we do say always is that the dead live on in the memory of the living. And if that's true, then, um, then I am able to to have my ancestors live on in the memory of the living and all the people who are attending this performance. So to me, this is a wonderful thing. This, it's a memorial. That was Victor Rosenberg discussing his family history and the Holocaust. A number of his relatives were interned during World War II at the Gorse prison camp in France, and their letters form part of the Gorse Cycle, a new multimedia work by the sound sculptor Trimpen. The Gorse Cycle premieres this weekend at Stanford University, and it's the subject of our show here today on the 7th Avenue Project. Another piece of the Gorse story fell into place for Trimpen last year when he met a Holocaust survivor named Manfred Wildman. Wildman lives in Menlo Park, California, but he's originally from southern Germany, and he and his family were sent to Gorse when he was just 10 years old. His recollections and some of his childhood drawings have been incorporated into the Gorse Cycle. I grew up in Germany, in the southeastern part of Germany, the region called Baden. And all the Jews from Baden were rounded up on October 22, 1940, and taken to Gers. And it's a train ride from Baden to Gers that this... Uh, Trimken is making a big deal about. <laughs> so that's how I ended up at Gurs. Was it a big deal for you, though, as a 10-year-old boy, to be suddenly taken away from the place you grew up and put on a train and sent to the south of France like this? Well, of course it was a big deal, especially we never knew where we were going. We were just put on a train that took off. So that was a big deal for a child. It's not so traumatic as for somebody who has grown up, who has lived all his or her life in one town and suddenly being taken along away. A child you take things as they come. You were with your family, though. They were also yes. on the train. Yes, the whole family and my grandfather and grandmother also. Did... Did they have a sense at that time of how terrible things were going to get, or, or what was their impression of what was going on? Well, things were pretty bad in Germany, and we were relieved 
when the train was heading south to France rather than northeast towards Poland. That's about all they knew. Of course, worse things happened two years later. This was in 1940, where the final solution had not yet been implemented. But in 42, everybody was deported to the extermination camps. And I always say the deportation of the Jews from Baden-Pfalz was terrible at the time. But in retrospect, it was actually a blessing in disguise because those who were not taken to the France two years later were taken to Auschwitz. Of the people in France, most of the young people survived. So you say most of the young people survived Gurs. What about people who weren't so young? Well, a lot of them died in Gurs because of bad conditions, bad food, or were taken back to the extermination camps starting in the summer of 1942. Um, but the young people stayed at Gurs throughout the war then? No, no, no. Anybody who was at Gurs was taken away. Wow. But in the two years from 40 to 42, a lot of help organizations, Jewish help organization, other organization, took the children out of the camps into children's homes. That's where most of the young people or children survived. You too? And me too, yeah. In a children's home where? In France. In France, and that's where you spent the rest of the war? Yeah. What about the rest of your family? Well, I had two sisters who also survived in the same way, but a brother and my parents were taken back to uh, Transy and to Auschwitz and died there. What did you do next after you got, when the war ended and you were released from this children's home, where did you go? Well, I was lucky. I had sisters who were five years older than I. I was 14, she was 19, and she took an apartment in town in France, and in 47, we emigrated to the United States. We had tried to immigrate as a family before the war, but it wasn't easy to obtain immigration paper to the United States, even when we had somebody to give us an affidavit, because the State Department at the time did everything they could to keep Jews out of the United States. That's a fairly well-documented fact. What were the conditions like then that you witnessed at Gors during that time you were there? Well, physically the conditions were very bad. I mean, the barracks consisted of just empty barracks with wooden floors, nothing, one light bulb, one stove, and uh, straw mattresses on the floor to sleep on. Again, for somebody 10 years old, sleeping on the ground is no big deal, but there were a lot of people, 50, 60, 70, 80, or even 90, for whom it was very awful. It has been mentioned that it rains a lot in that part of France, and to go to the toilets, you had to walk maybe 100, 200 feet in the mud. 
so it was very difficult to get up and go there. And the food, of course, was completely inadequate. I mean, people really starved. How do you feel about your part uh, in this production, that is, the memories of yours and the drawings you made being part of an actual work of art like this? I think it's good to, that it's being used. I mean, if it weren't part of that piece of art, it wouldn't be shown at all. So in that respect, it's good. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on our show, we're talking about the Gorse Cycle, a new work by the sound artist and musical inventor known as Trimpen. The performance commemorates the story of the Gorse prison camp in France, where thousands of Jews were held during World War II. I spoke to various participants in the production on the eve of its premiere at Stanford University. And in the final segment today, a conversation with Rindy Eckert. He's a well-known Bay Area performance artist, and he's directing and performing in the Gorse Cycle. He says Trimpen first pitched the project to him when they ran into each other at the Ojai Music Festival about two years ago. When Trimpen first proposed this to you or mentioned this idea that had been gestating in him for a very long time, what was your initial thought and what did you say to him? I said, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's Trimpen. <laughs> He's just one of those guys. If, if he asks you, you go, oh, yeah, sure. You were already familiar with Trimpen and his work. I was, yeah. And he had done a huge installation at Ojai, which was fantastic. So uh, it, was a, it was a good time to approach me because he had just, I'd just walked by some fabulous in, uh, work of his. What, what was the installation? Oh, well, it was, there was this one thing, and I, I can't describe it. It, it was these, these uh, frosted tubes of some kind that were, that were... It was related to water and the balance of water and somehow... They they made these sounds. It was all with bamboo, and it was sitting in the park. It was just, it was. I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have imagined such a thing. It, it was outdoors. Yeah, it was outdoors. But it was, um, to use the technical term, a contraption. It of was some a, kind. Yeah, it was a contraption. <laughs> all of his stuff is this these contraptions. But somehow, the balance of them, the combination of the sculptural balance, the ideas, the materials, they just work. I, and you can't explain why they work. I mean, we have this we have this water dripper on in Gorse Cyclus, and uh, you look at it, and and I love it. I just love looking at it. I think it's a beautiful piece of work. And I don't know why. Just describe it. It's got these it's got these little clear tubes that are filled with water, and on the bottom are these drippers that he's borrowed from some commercial juice machine or something like that, and he's. Uh, um, figured out how to make them uh, drop one single uh, drop at a time. And he can control the drop dropping by uh, a digital program on a computer. So he can time all the drips and this array of drippers so that they can have a musical rhythm. And then, so he's got these drippers that can drop into water and, and they're precise, the rhythm is precise. Can, oh boy! So it's this like precise rain. It's if it's raining only. It's raining in a precise rhythm. Oh! And the rhythms of that thing somehow communicate themselves back to the making of the instrument, because it's designed to be rhythmic. The way it's constructed looks rhythmic. It looks there's a rhythm to how he spaces out these things, and so there's there's this aesthetic of the thing. It, it just looks right. 
You look at it and you want to look at it. It's not a piece of machinery you want to hide. Nothing of Trimpin's you ever want to hide. You always want it out there, seeing all the mechanism available because somehow the balance of elements is fantastic. So I've seen a few of his installations uh, and a few of the devices he's created, and that is something that struck me. You can imagine making these these noise-making um, machines in a way that would be kind of ugly, a lot of cables and you know hardware and so on, but they're actually just wonderful to look at, uh, in addition to being wondrous in their operation. What about the sound they produce? That's also wondrous? It is. It is. That's another thing that, again, has to play into the aesthetics. If the sound doesn't balance with all the rest of it, then the whole gestalt doesn't quite work. And that's another thing about Trimpin's work, or the sound makes sense that is produced by these things. And, uh, um, and there's a sense of volume, too. There's a sense of the volume of the space he's dealing with just as a sculptor works with volume. So his installations are sensitive, for instance, to the volume of the space, and his sound is sensitive to the volume of the space he's dealing with. So if he's dealing with an outdoor situation, he has a sense of what that sound should be. In an indoor situation, he also has a sense of how that sound works. We've got these uh, things called we call castanets, which are really just wood, kind of wood blocks. And they're placed um, at various places in the auditorium. And it's perhaps one of the most satisfying and simple things. These little, tiny little, they look like insects hanging in the air. And, and, and they really are, it's like insects, and you hear this insect go, uh, and, but, but they have a particular pitch uh, relationship um, that is somehow enlivening to the ear, and then the distance that the sound travels to you, uh, it, it's just, you can sit there for five minutes listening to these stupid things just clack away, and you're kind of, why is why am I so happy right now? Mm. <laughs> you don't know why you're happy, but you are. <laughs> um, do you know whether he starts with a sound in mind and creates a device that will make that sound, or does he start with a device that seems like it'll be cool without knowing how it'll sound and just living with whatever sound it produces? You know, I suspect he has all all of those different... Uh, uh, most artists that I know start from various... Sometimes you get fascinated by a sound, sometimes you get fascinated by a device, and then you try and figure out how that device can make a sound. And, and sometimes uh, it's some sort of pure abstract idea. Uh, the look of something... Um, the way something works. Something starts you on a process of asking questions, it seems to me. And Trimpin, I think, is that way. Um, he, he goes down the road, something strikes him. Gurse, for example. He starts thinking about Gurse, this town in southern France. And, uh, you know, it was, just, um, it was just something he'd heard as a kid, but uh, it stuck with him. And it got mentioned by Conlon Nancaro, the same town. And then he thought back and he said, that's the same town that all the Jews from Efringenkirchen, where he grew up, they all were sent to Gurs when the town was evacuated by the Nazis. And uh, um, it brought up all these, you know, all these extraordinary feelings that one can feel, and the, the sense of a kind of um, national shame for uh, any German you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very visceral thing for a lot of young Germans in particular who 
want to dissociate themselves with that, and Trimpin was no exception, I'm sure, wanting to dissociate himself with what had gone on. And, um, but I think it's remarkable that he comes back to that and decides, you know, I need to, I need, this, is, this is my starting place, and now I need to expand from here. And, some, and he found some of, his, uh, some of his instruments came to mind that he'd already invented, so not all these in instruments were invented for this piece. They were instruments that he had had in his stock that, that seemed to call to him to say, oh, this belongs in this group of instruments. And uh, there was a whole thing about uh, once he started researching Gorse, um, water was a big deal. It was constantly wet and muddy and awful in that concentration camp. And so the idea of water and the dripping of water um, and then uh, it got into, uh, he, when he started thinking about Kanlan Nankaro, water uh, surfaced again. Kanlan Nankaro being? being uh, Kanlan Nankaro is something of a mentor for Trimpen. Um, he's a famous expatriate American composer, lived in Mexico, and he wrote primarily for player pianos. So he wrote, he composed in piano rolls, which are pieces of paper punched out. It's like the first digital music essentially. It's really primitive digital music. And so he was the first kind of digital composer who was, <laughs> was working mechanically with these piano rolls. And Trimpen was fascinated by that and became a, f a friend and a protege. And uh, then once in casual conversation, Nan Caro told the story of, of uh, being incensed by the uh, execution of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca by uh, Franco. The Spanish poet. Yeah, the Spanish poet. Who was assassinated at the very outset of the Spanish Civil yes, War. assassinated yeah. like in 1937, I think it was. 36, I think. 36. Yeah. And uh, then uh, the international world was, was completely appalled. And they formed an international brigade from people from Germany, Italy, France, America, all over. They converged to help fight Franco. They weren't enough. They weren't well trained enough. They weren't. There weren't enough of them to do the job, and they lost. And uh, as a result, a half a million. There were half a million refugees after the Spanish War flooding into France, and Conlon Nan Carroll was among those refugees. He was part of the uh, the American contingent. The, the American Lincoln contingent Brigades. was called the Lincoln Brigade, and they were all then. Um, they were the French didn't know what to do with them. They were considered undesirables. They were communists. They were socialists. They were. Uh, and they didn't belong there. They didn't have visas. That was so the French government uh, uh, sequestered them uh, on a beach in behind barbed wire. They didn't give them much. They just put them there to hold them there, and they had to organize themselves. It was cold. They had to dig into the sand for warmth. Um, many people died. A uh, famous uh, Spanish poet Antonio Machado died in on the beaches of uh, Argel-sur-Mer, where. Um, Conlon Nancaro was sequestered. Um, after several months, uh, there was a hue and cry in France. They wanted to, like, they, the beaches were becoming infamous, and the, and the regime decided they had to put them somewhere else. So, so many of them, about 6,800 or so, were sent to uh, Gorse. And uh, so Conlon Nancaro was there for a few months, and then it was deported back to America. Um, then the... Uh, Vichy regime gave Gorse to the Nazis as a concentration camp, and in 1940 they started um, uh, training in uh, 
Jews from uh, Germany. Um, the Vichy government being the um, collaborationist government in France that was uh, collaborating with the Nazis, you're saying, allowed the Nazis to start bringing Jews into this prison camp, mm-hmm. which a lot of people I don't think are aware of. They think of the camps in Germany, Poland, Eastern Europe, but not in southern France. Well, these were really holding cells, in a way. It wasn't an extermination it camp. It wasn't an extermination camp. Yeah. They, but they were, they were holding them there. Uh, and, you know, as soon as there was enough room in those camps, they were going to take the camps, from, take the people from Gorse and take them to the extermination camps. Mm. It was, you know, it was all incredibly gruesome. And, um, but Gorse itself was not an extermination camp. So uh, when you got sent to Gorse, you, were, you felt lucky. It was like, and there were some people that did survive mm. uh, uh, the Gorse camp. And um, you say they did survive. It didn't have gas chambers and crematoria, right? But they were dying for other reasons, right? They were dying out of uh, for malnutrition from dysentery. Um, some of them just they were old. You know, they had some. Uh, there was seven hundred or so uh, people who were above seventy years old, and just uh, so then I suppose natural causes, but uh, exacerbated, of course, by the circumstance. And um, there were 80 people per barrack, it was, and they were small. It was just packed in there like sardines. Um, and, uh, of course, you can imagine the sanitation uh, not being particularly good, so disease was, uh, was uh, rampant. Um, so it was, you know, horrifying, like those camps are. And Conlon Nancaro this guy who later became famous as a composer of these, this player piano music, um, got to know Trimpen and, and mentioned to him that he'd been at this camp after yeah. the, the Spanish Civil War. And then so Trimpen connected it back to his, his parents telling him the story about the, the uh, Jews from, from Efringenkirchen being sent to Gorse. And he thought, this name has come back to to haunt me in a way. It's, and so you, as an artist, very often when something comes back over and over again, and, you, and there's something in it for you, there's something you, you need to explore. I've heard there was a, a third return uh, of the story of Gerst into Trimpen's life after yeah. a, a New Yorker article on him was published in 2006. Well, he, he mentioned the name that someone, they asked him what his next project would be, and he said, well, I've been thinking about this Gorse uh, camp that, uh, and it just came up in a conversation with, you know, it just talked about its, its provenance. And um, then he got this, this uh, packet of letters from uh, people who had, whose relatives had been at Gorse and had written these letters to them. And uh, they sent him photocopies of all these letters and he started reading the letters the letters are, I assume, mostly in German? Yeah, they're all in German. All in German, and are they read aloud in English during the performance? One of them is read aloud, yeah. One, the two of them are read aloud in English, um, and then some of them are, portions of them are translated, and then they start getting read in German. Wow. They start out being read in English, and then finally at the end, they start being read in German. And then we go, there's a, there's a moment when words uh, start failing, and uh, then we just go into sounds and finally end with this, with a kind of organ piece, which is both um, a strange, ironic image, because the organs are driven by heat convection. 
And so they have a very soft and gentle sound. And there are also these flickering lights, so it has this idea of the eternal flame, mm. the idea of the spark of life. They are fed also by gas, and so it's this really very weird image where you, you, know, you have to live with this reality and you have to find an accommodation for it. You have to be able to see some sort of hopeful light within this. At the same time, you have to live and acknowledge the horror of that thing. And so there's, metaphors are very tricky and uh, really intriguing. When you talk about concentration camps and fire and gas, which are the things that are driving this music, <laughs> that's a very, very dark connection there, and yet it's creating music, which makes me want to ask the big question, or one of the big questions. I mean, people come to this performance, they're going to see and hear things that are delightful, that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah, is that true? Yeah. And it's all about something horrible. Yeah. Is that... But the last, the last uh, music is really extraordinarily lovely. So what so, is it to take horror or um, atrocity and make something pretty and well, beautiful out of it? Well, one of the things about the human spirit, and in fact, even when Trimpen talked about this, when he read the letters, one of the things that struck him was the capacity within the horror to find moments of beauty. Because many of these letters were not about the horror they were about little celebrations. Uh, you know, I got this remarkable piece of chocolate from my aunt Zoe, who sent me, and, and it was so lovely. You know, when we, we all had a bite of this chocolate and it was exquisite. So, and, and the idea of this is what we do and this is what we must do to survive is to find that moment of beauty, find something transcendent, even in the worst of circumstances. And so I think the persistence of the human spirit is maybe what this is all about. A lot of Trimpen's work is installations. It's mechanical and electrical devices making music mm -hmm. or making sounds mm -hmm. without human beings being there present, you know, producing those sounds. Yeah. So it's, it's machines. And this performance consists of both machines and human beings. I'm interested, though, in what it is to take a very human experience, in this case a very bad one, uh, the Holocaust, and have machines, in a sense, remember it, recall it, uh, perform it. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all not perfect words, but again, I'm, is, is, there something, is there something cold or... or, or inhumane about these machines? No. The thing about, that's one of the surprising things about Trimpen's machines. They're extremely warm. I don't know why. They're, you know, it's, it's just the way they're designed, the way they look. There's something sweet about them. I don't know how else to say it. You look at it and, and just looking at it kind of makes you happy. You don't know why. They don't seem threatening. They seem helpful in some way. All his machines seem helpful. It's like they're helping you. That was Rindy Eckert, who's performing in and directing The Gorse Cycle, a new multimedia work by the artist known as Trimpen, which uh, premieres this weekend at Stanford University. It's part of Stanford's Lively Arts series. And special thanks today to Bob Cable of Stanford Lively Arts, who made these interviews possible. 
I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. We're on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'll be back next week.